Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not know, he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that, this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And that's God's word. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for um, the amazing provision um, and solution to our greatest need. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but emptying yourself and um, taking uh, the wrath of the Father that we deserved. And thank you, God, that we are anchored behind the veil, that there's uh, nothing that can um, undo that anchor. And not our sin, not the sin of other people, not, um, not oppressive um, people who are in power, uh, but God, we just are grateful that we are eternally secure. And so, Father, uh, I pray that you would um, have your way with me this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd superintend over our time, that we would, you would bring encouragement through your word, uh, conviction as you see fit and that we would leave here uh, more resolved to live uh, lives uh, that are wise uh, for your good, for our good and for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' powerful name and God's people said, 
Amen. So we are uh, continuing to uh, march through our sermon series for the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, today, as uh, Patrick read, that we are, we're in chapter 8, and um, I've titled the sermon, um, Wisdom for the Powerless. Sounds like an oxymoron. Wisdom for the Powerless. And I want to ask you this morning right up front, um, what riles you up? What do you see on the horizon? What smoke do you see? What storm clouds do you see that get you riled up, that cause worry, that lie heavy upon you? Let me ask you this. Do you rely on your own wisdom to make sense of those storm clouds, of that smoke that you see? For me, um, sometimes I can let my preferences and my opinions and my emotions uh, drive me and get the best of me. I lose sleep over the direction of our country, and sometimes it saps my ability to truly enjoy life. Rather than trusting in God's sovereignty over all things, at times I complain to myself mostly, unlike some of you on Facebook. (laughs) What riles you up? What do you see on the horizon that lies heavy on your life and saps your joy? What's the remedy for that? Last week in chapter 7, verses 15 through 29, we, we saw the preacher wrestling with the great paradox of mankind, and that is, is why does bad things happen to good people? The way that he laid it out is in verse 15 is there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. It says that, this, uh, that, that uh, Solomon, the wisest man who had ever lived, he applied human wisdom to understand the bad things that happen to good people and he tried to understand why the life of the wicked is prolonged. He did acknowledge that living wisely is a good thing. It's a good choice. We did learn that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But that wisdom, human wisdom, can only bring us so far. We then saw the one-word answer for all the brokenness that we see in this world. The one-word answer. Why, God, is all this happening? And it's because of sin. It's because of the uh, man's original sin that started with Adam and Eve that has infected um, all of humanity since then. He said at the end of chapter 7, he said, God made people upright. He made people in his image. He made people good. But they, humanity, sought out many schemes. So the answer to why do bad things happen to good people, it isn't God. It's not God that's making it happen. It's our sin. We live in a broken world that was cursed at the moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God. God can stop it, and he will stop it one day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. Until then, um, the madness in this world um, won't stop. There will continue to be pain, brokenness, oppression, injustice, sickness, and death. Happy Father's Day. So how do we live hopeful, joyful, peaceful lives in light of these realities, in light of this paradox? 
wisdom is required to live in this broken world, and the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And here's what wisdom is. This is up Dan Hardy's definition. Wisdom is not simply the knowledge of something. It's, it is a knowledge of the character, attributes, and nature of God that endeavors to live according to his word in this fallen world. So, so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and actually there is no ultimate wisdom for those who are not in Christ. As we'll see as, this, as we progress through this passage. So today we're going to look at wisdom for the powerless. You and I can be wise, we should be wise, we can grow in wisdom, but at the end of the day, we are powerless to control our circumstances. And I hate that. I like to be in control. There are six principles or takeaways from this section of scripture that I'm going to give you right up front. First of all, wisdom is limited. Wisdom, human wisdom is limited. Second, wisdom is necessary. Third, wisdom acknowledges God's sovereignty. Fourth, wisdom is content. Fifth, wisdom is joyful. And sixth, we are to pursue wisdom. So the preacher starts off, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? Spoiler alert, he gives us the answer in, in verse 17 to the end of the chapter. These are rhetorical questions, and the answer is no one. No one is wise, ultimately wise. And no one knows the interpretation of a thing. Verse 17, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So who's like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? No one. Human wisdom is limited. But at the same time, he observes the face or countenance of a wise person. Have you ever thought about how do I know if somebody's wise? You know, usually we'll ask them a bunch of questions and, and we'll, we'll think that they're living their life wisely, so we'll assume they're wise. But he gives us a clue right up front. He says, he, in the end of verse one, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. A wise person's countenance is different. It's different. It's, a, it's, it's soft appearance, not hard. It's relaxed, it's careful, it's joyful, opposed to stressed and worried and angry. So you want to seek wisdom from people who aren't perfect? Doesn't mean that they don't worry, that doesn't mean they're not fearful. We all have that at some level, but there's just a, there's a certain sense of peace uh, about their countenance because they trust in the Lord. He's going to give us a pretty precise and profound example of wisdom in verses two through five that has great application for us today. It's hard to know how to exercise wisdom in dealing with those who are in authority, especially when we disagree with those who are in authority. So initially, the preacher tells us to apply wisdom in our relationship with the king or the government in our case because we don't have a king he says in verse 2, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. It doesn't say keep the good king's command. It doesn't say um, keep the king's command that you voted for. 
It doesn't say disobey the king's command because you didn't vote for him or because you don't like him or her. It says obey government authorities that God has put in over us. The preacher is writing um, to, people, to people in Israel. And when a, when a king was placed in office, they took an oath or a vow to obey the king. It has application for us today, um, God's people today. If you are a follower of the one true God, your oath before God is to obey the king's command. When we say I do to Jesus by professing faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins, we make an oath to follow him and his commands, all of his commands, that we're not saved by obedience, but our worship and our service to the Lord is best demonstrated through our obedience to the commands in here. And P.S., one of his commands is what? Obey the government. He then gives a warning of what not to do when you disagree with the governing authorities. Has anybody um, disagreed with the government at any time? Yeah, at any time, any place, local government, state, federal. He says this in verse 3, do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. The king does whatever he pleases. Don't be quick to flee from the king's presence, or in other words, the king's authority. When you don't agree, be wise. Don't take your stand in an evil or bad cause. What might that be? What is an evil or a bad cause? I believe it's, it's blatantly disobeying the law of the land or making known your preferences and opinions in a way that the law of the land doesn't allow. We can have opinions. We can express our opinions. There's freedom of speech in this country. Praise God. But when, when we disagree with the government, we can take an evil stand by going against the government in ways that the law doesn't allow. We're not going to go into detail on that. It says, for he does whatever he pleases. What the preacher is saying here is chill out. The king and the government's going to do whatever they please. Just chill out. For, verse 4, for the word of the king is supreme. It's backed with God's power and authority because God put him or her in office. And who may say to him, to the king, what are you doing? Nobody. We can't ultimately resist or question the king. We'll see that there are some cases where we can. Verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. The commands of the government are meant to protect its citizens. And the wise heart will know if and when to take a stand against the government. And Paul has a lot to say about this in Romans 13. I want you to listen to this. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Romans 13. And Paul says this. And by the way, um, in this culture, um, I mean, Rome was way more opposed to Christianity um, than our government is today. And we may, and, and more than we'll ever see probably. And he said this speaking to all of humanity, but particular uh, uh, speaking to Christ's followers. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Let every person come underneath the government. For there is no authority. There's no government. There's no king. There's no president. There's no governor except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Yes, 
Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Governor Paulus. Does that surprise you? Every one of them are in office because God has allowed them to be in office. Number two, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This is not talking about eternal judgment or eternal punishment. It's talking about the consequences of breaking the law. You speed the church in the morning, you're going to get busted. That's what laws are there for. There's a consequence for disobeying the law established by the government. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. You should be afraid of the government if your conduct is bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant, the king, the government, for your good. But if you do wrong, if you break the law, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, come underneath the government, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of the conscience. And we're going to talk about the conscience a little bit um, later in this sermon. But our conscience lets us know when we're doing wrong. And the more that we harden our conscience by doing wrong, the more wrong that our conscience is going to want to do. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes, because God put them there, and because you are subject to the government. Because of this, you also pay taxes. We don't have to know what the taxes go for. We pay taxes when our roads are a mess. We pay taxes when we don't get all the services that we want. For this, you pay taxes. For the authorities or ministers of God attending to the very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I want to ask the question, do we need to respect and honor all that God's put in office. I don't have a clear answer to that, but I believe we need to respect the office at a minimum because God has instituted it. It doesn't mean that we need to honor or respect bad character, but it does mean that we need to honor and respect the laws of the land. We are to obey them under most circumstances. But God isn't telling us to respect and honor bad character. Are there times to disobey the king's command or speak out against the government? Answer that in your own mind. Are there times to disobey the government? The answer to that is yes. Simply speaking, when the government commands its citizens to believe or act in a certain way that is, in, that is contrary or in opposition to his word, you have freedom. Not only freedom, uh, but you are urged to disagree. We have issues like that in our culture today. Many of them are surrounded around the sanctity of life and the institution of marriage and the ill treatment of the least of these. And we are to stand firm against any authority that contradicts God's word. But honestly, what I see of a lot of Christians in America is that we're more passionate 
about the right to bear arms than we are about the sanctity of life. And there's not a, there's not a comment, there's not an opinion there, so don't get all ruffled up. What I'm saying is, is that there's a lot more opinion and preferences and willingness to take down the government because of their stance on some of these things and where the culture's headed than, than their stance on the sanctity of life. So, into verse 5. So, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. A person operating with wisdom will not only know what to oppose, but they will know when and how to respond to the evil that they observe in the king. We've been instructed to not be hasty to leave the king's presence or buck his authority, but we're not to take a stand in a bad or evil cause. So I want to just take a look at a few examples of scripture. Here's some examples of when it's okay to disobey the government. Um, David, who was not yet king, um, he respected a divine office, and that was the king, the office of king. Even when the king was a very bad man, his name was Saul. And not only was Saul a bad man, Saul was trying to kill David. And so David intentionally avoided harming the Lord's anointed, whom was trying to kill David. Here, I'm going to give you a couple other examples. One is uh, Peter and James. Peter and James were, uh, were preaching um, salvation in Jesus. The Roman officials didn't like it because, they, they, because Caesar was at risk. And so the authorities uh, brought Peter and James before them. They brought them before the council. Acts chapter 5, and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching about Jesus, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered what? We must obey God rather than man, for we cannot stop talking about what we've seen and heard. And then Jesus, when he sent the 12 out to preach, he said, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus warned the disciples about the persecution that they would, that they would endure. And he said, be wise as serpents, be innocent as doves. The serpent was a symbol of shrewdness and intellectual cunning, and a dove was a symbol of gentleness. And then this is probably the clearest one for me in Daniel chapter 3. Remember the three dudes that got thrown in the fire? The king, Nebuchadnezzar, made a decree that every man who hears the sound of a horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So he brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up now? Now, if you are ready... To obey me. When you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who will save you? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to them, O king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
Our ultimate authority is God. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand. I want you to make note of this. He didn't say that our God, my God, will deliver us from you. He said that eventually I will be delivered. He's able to deliver us. Their faith was in the God who is able to deliver today from our trials, but in the one who will definitely deliver us from all of our trials um, one day when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. 18, but if not, if he doesn't deliver us from this fire, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image that you have set up. So the end of verse 5, it says, A wise person will know the proper time and the proper procedure to keep a command. This is important because there are certain um, things in the government in particular that we all have a strong opinions and, opinions and preferences against that aren't in the word. So God will give us a time and a way to respond to that in a way that honors the Lord. And I can tell you that comes up mostly every four years in November. It's called an election. But he will also give us a proper time and procedure to outright disobey a law or command that, that contradicts God's word. He says in verses 6 and 7, for there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? There is a time and a right procedure for everything under the sun. And it takes patience and faith to wait when there's trouble on the horizon. When I see smoke on the horizon, when I see storm clouds on the horizon, it means that fire and storms could be right around the corner. And that trouble weighs heavy on me. And I know it weighs heavy on you as well. There's all types of of smoke and storm clouds in our culture that should bother us as Christians. It lies heavy on us. When we see injustice or oppression by the government, when we see the government decaying or heading in the right direction, whenever that is, it weighs heavy on us and it causes us to worry and fear. You see, nobody knows where the culture is headed and nobody can tell us. I can tell you ultimately what's going to happen. And we take great hope in that. This trouble lies heavy because we are ultimately powerless. It wouldn't be that big a deal if we could, if we could just change things whenever we wanted to change them. We ultimately have no control over the government and others in power. And when we see evil agendas and policies on the horizon being fueled by people in power, things like abortion and same-sex marriage and the transgender agenda, um, things like nationalism and oppressing the weak, these lie heavy on us because they stand against God's character and they stand against God's word and we have no control or power over any of these ultimately. Happy Father's Day. And to make his point underlined, underscored, the point that we have no ultimate control over anything that happens on the earth, he gives us graphic explanations of the reality of human beings having no control. Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit. In other words, no man has power to control the wind. Have you ever been in a hurricane or a tornado? 
you have, you know the power of the wind, and there's nothing we can do to control it. Or the power over the day of death. We have no authority over death. There's nothing we can do to control the day we die. All we can do is delay the decay by eating well and exercising. There's no discharge from this war. Just like someone who is enlisted in the service, who is at war, there's no discharge. We can't get out. It is a battle. The war has been won. That Satan and sin and death have been conquered. The final war is done. But there's still these little skirmishes that we cannot be discharged from. We fight the battle the Lord has given us with weapons that he makes available. Namely, his word, his spirit, and his people. But I fear we often fight the wrong battles and we use the wrong weapons. And even with the the right weapons, ultimately, we're powerless over a lot of this. And finally, he says, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. The solution is is not to um, hit evil with evil or wickedness with wicked wickedness. Verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. People in power, historically, you go back generation after generation, people in power are bent on pursuing their own interests without regard to, um, to the harm they are causing others. Power corrupts absolutely. And absolute power corrupts. Uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I'm not saying that authority is inherently bad. Other, you know, all of humanity is inherently bad. But, but power uh, and those in authority aren't inherently bad. But authority that seeks its own agenda at the expense of those they serve and protect is evil. We have some obvious examples. Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein. But we got some not so obvious examples. And many of you have been hurt by those in power. Dads, pastors, business leaders, politicians. One of the reasons that we have plurality in this church, a plurality of elders rather than a senior pastor model where there's one guy in charge that, that, can, that can fire and hire and has the last, is that um, we, man's not trustworthy. Um, it works. I mean, some churches it works if I'm a man of character, but it's really, it's really protection in many ways uh, from keeping um, one man from um, having ultimate authority. And we see the preacher laments in verse 10, we see him lament the paradox of the sins of the wicked being winked at and their lives being celebrated. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in when they were alive, they used to go in and out of the holy place and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. What he saw were were leaders who were evil, who were self-serving oppressors who were getting buried with honors. In that culture, criminals didn't have a proper burial. These wicked people who were exercised power to the harm of others were apparently part of a faith community. They used to go in and out of the holy place. 
And as they frequented the temple, they were praised by others. Maybe they were great communicators. Maybe they were military leaders. Maybe they were um, popular politicians or rabbis. Maybe they were wealthy people who gave much to the church. And this is a sickening reality, actually, of how um, those with money, those who are successful and powerful, are esteemed for their accomplishments and for their giftedness. That's not bad on itself, but when there's no vetting of their character, You see, in our culture, we esteem people of high intellect and high success without understanding. Think of all the people even in the Me Too movement that have been esteemed for years while they've been adulterers and fornicators and immoral. Then after this observation of injustice, the preacher talks about the consequences of unchecked evil. You see, when humans get away with sin, we develop a greater appetite for more sin, for more rebellion. Small, small sins, lying, just a little lie, a little cheating, um, just a little copyright infringement. Um, when I was young, we'd go to um, Elitch's and we'd go to Winter Park to ski. And in Elitch's, I don't know if they still have it, they had the, the, uh, the clown by the roller coaster. You had to be as tall as the clown to ride the roller coaster. And I was just told, hey, Danny, just, just stand on your, your tiptoes a little bit. Just try to be a little bit taller so you can ride on it. Just, it's not hurting anybody. Go to Winter Park, and if you were um, under 12 years old, you got, a, you got a cheap ticket. So when I was 13, I was told to say I was 11, so I'd get a cheap. Just small lies that really aren't going to hurt anybody. Unchecked wickedness gives an appetite for more wickedness. How about something like not reporting uh, cash income on your taxes? Nobody will ever know. So when was that? Last time I checked, um, that just because nobody knows or nobody catches you doesn't make it right. Verse eleven: because because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The delay in punishing a crime encourages people to do more evil. We always prayed when our kids were younger, God, would you um, help us catch our kids in disobedience? Would you help us catch them in their lies? Because we wanted an opportunity to, to be able to beat the tar out of them, no, to, to, uh, to, to discipline them. You see, when disobedience is allowed to run amok, it only encourages more law-breaking. Many of us have seen this with our children. And parents, it's important to have clear rules, clear laws in your home. Hopefully these are rooted and informed by Scripture. And hopefully they're ultimately for the good of your child and for the good of your family. Children need that. So they're not left guessing what to expect or how to behave. But there's a catch to this. That's not where it stops. And we see it in verse 11. If there are no clear consequences established for disobedience, and the child in this case knows that they can get away with their disobedience, it doesn't matter if there's rules and laws and expectations. If there's no consequence for their disobedience, they will continue that pattern in greater ways into their adulthood. 
clear expectations, consistent discipline or consequences are of utmost importance. You see, when we wink at sin in our home, when we wink at sin in the church, when we wink at sin in our culture, it actually encourages more sin. And I just, I don't have this here, but I want to say this because God just brought it to mind, is that we're not to wink at the sin of the culture. Unbelievers I'm talking about, we're not to wink at it. We can call sin, sin. But we're not, let's not moralize them. Let's give them the gospel of Jesus Christ and ask God to change them from the inside out and watch them start a new trajectory towards obedience away from wickedness. But we can't wink at sin. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the, with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. In the end, no matter how long wickedness is allowed, um, a wicked person is allowed to live, one day justice will be served, and it will not go well with those who did evil, and it will go well with those who fear God. And let me uh, even rephrase that. It will go very well for those of us who committed evil, who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We have a new direction to the glory of God with our lives. And then the preacher throws out this great paradox again in verse 14, the million-dollar question this paradox, that there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. Yes, bad things happen to good people. Yes, good things keep happening to wicked people. This also is vanity. And remember what vanity is. It's hevel. It's a vapor. It's a mist. And this won't go on forever. At some point, Jesus will return and bring about justice. So how should we live in light of these paradox? Knowing that there is trouble that weighs heavy on us, that it will soon pass and justice will be eternally served. How do we live in light of this? And the answer isn't what you'd expect. And the preacher says, I recommend joy. I recommend joy. I hate it when people say that. I commend joy for the man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. As hard as life can be, we can find joy in it. In spite of the injustice we see in the world, in spite of all the trouble we see on the horizon and the questions we can't answer, wise people will seek to enjoy themselves in the life that God has given them. How and why? Because God has given to them. And God is good. He's loving. He knows what we need. So how might the, how might the preacher rec, preacher's, preacher's recommendation to pursue enjoyment relate to all that seems to be vanity? Verse 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night no one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man 
may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. He tried to apply human wisdom to understand everything done on earth, and all he got was sleepless nights. Who is wise? Who knows an interpretation of a thing? Three times in verse 17, no one does. Man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. He will not find it out. He cannot find it out. He says, I saw all the work of God. And this is an important, uh, what is it, six words. It's important and it's profound because God is working in all that we cannot understand. Can we be content in that? Can we find enjoyment when there are storm clouds on the horizon and smoke in the distance? And I want to just revisit these six principles before we go to communion. Six principles from this passage. Human wisdom is limited. Read your books. Study philosophy. Get your degrees. None of that is evil or negative on its own. But if you're looking for answers that can only be found um, uh, through Christ, human wisdom is limited. Wisdom is necessary, number two. It's important to have wisdom to live this life. Three, wisdom acknowledges the sovereignty of God. A wise person understands that God reigns, he's on his throne, and he's working his goodwill and purpose. Number four, wisdom is content because of God's sovereignty. Fifth, wisdom is joyful. And number six, we're to pursue wisdom. Not that type of wisdom, but pursue the wisdom that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That Jesus Christ, that's the Sunday school answer, Jesus Christ is everything. And the only thing that makes sense to this broken and fallen world is understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, is understanding um, the reality of original sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even those who look good. But God didn't leave us in that condition. That the Father created us for a relationship. And when that relationship was marred, and he left the garden and left us there to tend to weeds, what happens to be, which the weeds happen to be our sin and the sin of others in our life. He didn't leave us there. He didn't leave us there. He said that he would send one who would crush the serpent's head. That he would send one who would uh, have to um, take the wrath and the judgment that we deserve so that we can be clothed in Christ's righteousness and have a relationship with the God who created us for a relationship. 
That's wisdom. And that all who put their faith and trust in Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, not only are we forgiven of our sins, not only is there a a heavenly home awaiting for us, but today we get a relationship with him. That he is with us. That he sees us. That he cares for us. And one day, he will come again. He will come again to set all things right. The dead will be raised. The dead in Christ will be raised. That there'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more death. And of course, no more sin. And we won't have um, competing authorities. Even though we, today we shouldn't have competing authorities, we have one authority, and then we got all these, these little authorities. But it'll be clear who we serve one day. And there'll be no more agendas. So I just encourage you to contemplate those glorious truths um, as we get ready to celebrate communion. And on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Eat this in memory of me. Then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. So can I encourage you just at your own pace and speed, come up and grab the juice and grab the bread, go back to your seat and uh, just uh, enjoy it, take it. And we'll sing praises to the Lord.
fount I know nothing but the blood of Jesus. 